0: Guys, would you join me, Matthew chapter 14? This is uh, starting a new chapter as we're going through the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. I'm not going to have a lot of introductory comments. Uh, The text is a shift. Uh, We have seen Christ giving us like seven or eight parables in chapter 13. And then he left Capernaum and went over to his hometown of Nazareth where he preached and did a few miracles but was rejected. And then that brings us up to this point in our text. i got to tell you, uh, just preparing for this this week, because we've been so much in the book of Matthew recently, I feel a little bit like I'm cheating, like I'm cheating on the Lord. Because um, we're not going to focus our study this morning. No, Jesus has mentioned our study is not focusing on Christ, but we're going to be reintroduced to another character that has been earlier in the text and then brought up to speed with a couple of new characters. And we're going to go where the text takes us this morning, so we'll focus on those in just a bit. All right, But we are not cheating on the Lord. Ultimately, Christ is underneath all and in all uh, that we're studying. So uh, would you join me? Here we go. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 14, Matthew. Ready? Everybody there? Verse 1. At that time, so I need to pause right there and just briefly, don't be too deceived by that. That doesn't necessarily mean like immediately following his rejection of Nazareth because the other two gospels that we draw a lot of information from lend us to believe that at this point, so after leaving Nazareth, it appears that Jesus sent the 12 disciples out in groups of two and he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal people and then they start coming back and so this is happening throughout galilee and that leads to what's about to happen so the rumor of this is spreading not only is jesus powerful but he's giving power to his disciples verse one at that time herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of jesus herod the tetrarch starts i don't know where he's been head in the sand something's going on He hasn't heard a whole lot about this, but now he hears about the fame of Jesus and his power and his disciples, and he says three things in verse number two. So let me go ahead and say, in the whole scheme of things in the book of Matthew, the main point of this text is verse one and two, though I'm not gonna spend the majority of my time there because verse one and two is gonna kick us into a backstory in verses three through 12. But notice verse one and two again. So at that time, Here come the disciples back. They're amazed. We were actually able to heal people, cast out demons. This is awesome. Well, sure, I told you that's what's going to happen. I gave you that power. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants three things. This is John the Baptist. So here's the fame about Jesus. He concludes, this is John the Baptist. He's raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So you see, he's come to three conclusions. That's John... John's risen from the dead. That's why this person has this power. Now, if you've been paying attention, and you remember if you were with us four or five months ago when we were in chapter 11, you may be thinking, oh, well, well time out. The last we heard, John was in prison. Now we need the backstory. story. Why would Herod come to this conclusion? Verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. Why did Herod do this? The text says, for the sake of Herodias, to appease her, to keep her happy. So he has John bound, arrested, put in prison for her sake. Who's she? Verse number three finishes. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Boy, this guy's really considerate of his sister-in-law. Well, no, verse four. Why is she want John put in prison? Because, verse 4, John had been saying, not just one time, had been saying to him, to Herod, John had been saying to Herod, either publicly, I don't know, maybe this was a face-to-face, maybe it was a face-to-face, and other types of things, But the, uh, in public declarations, but either way, because John, why does she have it in for him? Because John had been saying to him, Herod, it is not lawful. For you, Herod, to have her. You know what he's saying. It's not right that you have her. She's Philip's wife. This is inference, verse 5. And though he, Herod, wanted to put him to death, in a sense, we're going to clarify that a little later, part of him, part of Herod, wants to put John to death. You can figure out why he wants to do that, to keep somebody happy. Verse 5. Though he wanted to put him to death, He feared the people. So I'm going to say the people here do not necessarily have to mean those that are following God's leading. But sometimes in government, there's a fear of an uprising of the people. So verse 5, though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. Because they held him, John, to be a prophet. Got to be careful how I treat this guy. They think he's a prophet. Uh, Newsflash, Herod, he is a prophet. So that's where things stand until verse 6. So he's got him in prison, kind of wants to put him to death, but he's afraid of the people. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter, pay attention, this gets really twisted. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, not Herodias, the daughter of Herodias, danced before the company. And pleased Herod. Now you can already figure out. So here's this young girl dancing in front of Herod and his, his guests at his birthday party. And she pleased him. You've got to figure out, though the text does not say it explicitly. It's implying to us. It's, he's not pleased. that Boy, your ballet lessons are really paying off. You're such a great square dancer. I've never seen anyone line dance like you can. No, that's not what's happening. This is sick. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. How pleased? So that he promised with an oath. I swear. I swear. With an oath. He promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. I'll give you whatever you ask. You don't see it here in Matthew. Mark tells us she exits the room, goes and checks with her mother Herodias, comes back. Prompted, verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Mark puts it even more emphatically. She wants it right away, now. Don't want want you to have time to change your mind. Get me John the Baptist. You say, I can have anything I want. Here's what I want, John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Verse 9. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths, he's sorry that he's done it. But because of his oaths, I swore, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Mark tells us he sent executioners down in the, in the dungeon. He sent, verse 10, verse 11, he sent, verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Very matter of fact, the way Matthew writes it. And his head, John's head, was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And in verse 12 is its own little section as it starts to transition us to, Lord willing, next week's passage. And his disciples, John's disciples, came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And so by them going and tell Jesus, we know that there was no friction between Jesus and John based off of what happened back in chapter 11 because his disciples come and get his dead body that does not have a head on it they give it a proper burial and then they go and tell jesus and then next week we'll see how jesus responds would you notice three things with me this morning we are not going to study the way the verses break down like we normally do today we're going to back up and do more of noticing certain things about these characters this is very different i'm going to tell you very very different than what we've been doing Uh, This reminds me of like the book of Acts, to be honest with you. So this is a story, a narrative. Notice the three main characters. Number one, we'll spend a good bit of time on this one. Herod, a foolish man of depravity. Ladies and gentlemen, Herod the Tetrarch was a foolish man... Of depravity, depravity meaning the most base, wicked, vile, sinful heart, a a depraved heart led to a reprobate, unreliable mind that led to the things that we're talking about. But listen to me, he gets it honest. Pay attention here. Herod, the tetrarch, gets his depravity honest, not just from his original father, Adam, from whom he inherited a sin nature, but he gets it from his immediate father, a man named Herod the Great. See, the name Herod in the New Testament, you got to pay attention and really research it out because it could be referring to up like four different people. Most of us have heard about Herod the Great. So we go back, we're not going to turn there, but Matthew's already introduced to us Herod the Great. So I'm going to get this point across that Herod the Tetrarch gets his depravity honestly from his father. Can I just give you five things? I'm I'm telling you, this is a sample. Go home and pull up Wikipedia or wherever and do a study of Herod the Great, and you're going to see some vile, wicked things. Let me give you five as a sample. If any one of these was in your family, you would be absolutely ashamed to be in that family. Five things about Herod the Great. So he's the top guy, right? And the things flow from him. He's the original. And they all love his name so much, they keep repeating his name and taking it upon themselves. Five things about Herod. Number one, Herod had at least nine wives. I didn't say nine lives. Nine wives. Number two, Herod put to death at least one of those wives. Probably more than one of those wives, but he executed at least one of the wives. Number three, Herod executed at least, confirmed, two of his children. He kills at least one wife, at least two of his children. Number four, Herod tried his absolute dead-level best, as much as he could as an earthly king, to put Jesus the Christ to death as a little child. He did his best. He was not successful, but he tried to kill Jesus. Number five, he slaughtered the little baby boys two years old and under in the city of Bethlehem. Herod the Great was a wicked man, and his descendants, his family, is a family of extreme depravity. Look at verse number one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch. You see him? Herod the Tetrarch is obviously not Herod the Great, but his son. Herod the Great died back in like... 4 BC, and that's very confusing, I get it. Our calendar is not exactly right. We're about six years off. Apparently, Jesus was born six years before what we say is before Christ. So he lives for a couple of years, and then Herod dies around 4 BC, and then his kingdom is split among his children. That was his wish, and Rome allowed for that. But notice verse number one, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch. So here we have Herod the Great, watch, Herod Antipas. This is Herod Antipas. Though it's not stated here, it's very clear in history. This man is Herod Antipas. Talk about him more in a moment. Who's this girl? Herodias. So we're introduced to this Herodias is in the text. So we have Herod the Great. He has a son, many children. One of them is named Herod Antipas. Over here is a granddaughter named Herodias. Her father is named Aristobulus. So here's what we got. We've got Herod the Great. We have Antipas. I don't know the order of the ages. But we have over here Aristobulus. Aristobulus has a daughter named, we love this name, Herod, so we're going to keep using it, Herodias. Right? So here's where we really start in the story. Herodias fell in love with her uncle, a man named Philip. So now we have Herod the Great. He has other sons, but we've got Aristobulus' daughter, Herodias. We have Philip, and over here we have Antipas. Herodias falls in love with Uncle Philip, and they get married, but it doesn't last. Because her other uncle, Antipas, goes to Rome to visit Philip, and while he's there, he starts falling in love with Herodias, wins her heart, ends up stealing her away. Herodias divorces her uncle Philip, and uncle Antipas divorces his wife, and that way she divorces uncle Philip and ends up marrying uncle Antipas. This is a twisted, sick family. Just one more piece of information, just so you'll have a picture, an idea of how they get this so honestly. There's much, much more. Go back to Herodias. Watch We have Herod the Great. Over here we have Aristobulus, these other brothers. Aristobulus has this daughter Herodias. Herodias has a brother named Herod Agrippa I. So this is her brother. Herod Agrippa has three kids himself. Herod Agrippa II, we love the name, keep using the same name over and over. Herod Agrippa II is the son of Agrippa I, brother of Herodias. So Herod Agrippa I has Herod Agrippa II. And Bernice and Drusilla, and you guessed it, Agrippa II and Bernice, they're real sweet on each other. So they end up spending their life together sexually as a sibling couple. They fell in love with each other. This is a sick, twisted family. Notice what would, verse number 1. This is where I told you. Look at verse 1 and then quickly go to your maps in the back. Verse 1 says, at that time, Herod the." tetrarch heard about the fame of jesus so go to your maps hopefully you have a bible there look at the map section don't go to the part the very back uh, where you have paul's missionary journeys but go a little before that you'll see palestine in the time of christ and i want you to notice the color coding uh, because i want you to see a couple of things what does tetrarch mean tetrarch means ruler of one-fourth ruler of a quarter I should have put this on the screen because the map that I have in my Bible is literally like perfect because it gives a color-coded breakdown, not just of the regions, but of the rulers in the time of Christ in Palestine. Would you go up in the northern part of Palestine? Do you see Galilee? you see that? So Philip the Tetrarch, it was his responsibility. He was the ruler over Galilee. But also, you see that's right there at the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater lake. Go down south of that and you'll see the Dead Sea toward the bottom of your map. And you see the region to the right side of Jordan's River? You see that section called Perea, right? So those two sections separated are what this Herod the Tetrarch rules. He rules over Galilee and he rules over Perea. Why is that important? Here's why that's important. Those are the two regions that John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry had their primary time spent and their primary effect was done. You see that Perea on the east side of the Jordan River? That's where John the Baptist had a primary ministry. Some of you will actually have, just to the right, about seven miles east of the Dead Sea, a little dot, and you'll see a a city there, a town. It's actually a palace, a fortress called Machaerus. Raise your hand. Anybody see that? Just to the right. Raise your hand. Many of you see that. All right. That's his southern post. So his father had built this big palace seven miles. You can actually see the Dead Sea over to the west from this high lofty place. And that's where he has a palace and underneath it there's a dungeon. And that's where John the Baptist is being held. If you'll go back up to Galilee, some of you, if you have that on your map, you probably have right on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see a city called Tiberias. And this is what Herod the Tetrarch had built during his time. So I'm saying that for this reason. He is splitting his time between those two places. He goes back and forth between Tiberias and Macarius, and each one. So that's his Galilean capital, and the other one is his Perean, uh, Perean capital. And this is where he's going to split his time. And this puts him in direct contact with the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. Now, if you would go back to Matthew 14, let's start studying this man. You'll probably hear me use the phrase repeatedly, it gets worse. Look at verse number two. This man, again, he earns it. He gets it honestly from his father and the whole family. Just depravity is running throughout. Ladies and gentlemen, depravity often will find its way in our words. When our heart is depraved, it's going to come out in our words. And in this verse two, it's going to come out as utter foolishness. So the way the text breaks down, there's not a lot of direct theology, but by looking at this, what we're going to do is we're going to see it, we're going to describe it, and then we're going to make some points from it. And I hope that the Lord will use this. Again, very unusual style than what we've been in. Verse number 2, notice that Herod the Tetrarch foolishly reaches three conclusions. He's dead wrong on all three. He goes o oh, for 3. O oh, for 3, number 1. He hears about the fame of Jesus, and this is what he concludes. This is John the Baptist. No, Jesus is not John the Baptist. Number two, he concludes John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. No, John the Baptist had not been raised from the dead. His third conclusion and statement is that's why John the Baptist being risen from the dead is why this person, Jesus, has these miraculous powers. Listen, O for three. The reason that matters is this is a man whose word carries authority. He's out there talking. This is, his, this is what he believes. O for three. Dead wrong. Way off. Can I just make a quick point? The wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things about the day and age we live is that information can be shared very quickly. Ideas can be shared extremely, I mean at amazing speeds. Now the bad thing about the day and age we live is that ideas can be shared with amazing speed. You want to know why? Guys, can I just tell you? Much of what is being said out there is just wrong. It's not right. It's inaccurate. I watched a 20-minute video that was put out by somebody last Sunday. Thankfully, to date, what he was saying was going to happen within two or three days hasn't happened. Anybody here seen that video? Would you raise your hand? Several of us. Mike, your hand. Yep. Right. Hundreds of thousands of people. It goes out like that, and it just starts spreading all over the place. And by the way, he's supposed to be a preacher, a prophecy Bible preacher. And I hope what he's saying doesn't happen. Crazy things. False information spread so quickly in our day. This is this man. He has a depraved heart and he has a wrong belief. Saying something confidently doesn't make it so. Saying something repeatedly doesn't make it so. Putting it in all caps doesn't make it so. Getting other people to say it with you doesn't make it so. Getting it said on multiple channels, even news channels, multiple print publications does not make it so. Notice with me verse number 3 and 4. We're looking at chapter 14. I want to offer three things in verses 3 and 4 that reveal to us the depravity, not just in his words and the foolishness of his words, but also the depravity seen in his actions. Look at verse 3. For Herod has seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Can I can offer you three things, and you'll write these down in a moment. Number one. The depravity of Herod is seen This is important. The depravity of Herod is seen in him even wanting his sister-in-law. He has a desire toward Herodias. He visits Rome, and while there, he goes to see his brother and his wife, Herodias, which is actually his so it's his sister-in-law, and by the way, you've already picked this up, right? She's not just his sister-in-law, she's his niece, just like she was. Philip's niece. So he goes to Rome, visits his brother. While there, his brother's wife, who's his niece and also his sister-in-law, he starts noticing, he's attracted, he starts falling in love. This is his depravity because the moment he started feeling that, he should have cut his trip short, said, hey, I know I was going to stay longer. I've got to go. He should have left that. His sin and his depravity is that he started feeding his heart and allowing his heart to go places that it should have never gone. He should have never, Well, you can't help it if he found her that, no, don't let your heart go there. She's off limits to you. It gets worse. Number two, not only does he have feelings for her and develop those feelings, but he indulges himself. He satisfies himself in stealing his brother's wife away. Why? Because he can. He can. He's figuring it out. She'll go with me. She'll leave him. I can have her. And so he lets himself have his brother's wife. And to beat all, as we just read, on top of it, he throws John in prison. Why are you putting that man in prison? Because he has the courage to say that what Herod and Herodias are doing is unlawful against the law of God. You are breaking the laws of God. You are not supposed to be living that way. You are in sin. Because John has the courage to say it, then Herod's going to have him put in prison. Did you catch what just happened? Herod's sin is exposed. Whose sin is it? Herod's sin. Herodias, her sin is there. Herod's sin is exposed. His response is not repentance. His response is not to agree with the Lord. You're right. I should not have done that. Why did I even go down that road? I have to fix this. I have to get right with God and repent. That's not what he does. He instead silences the messenger of God. Listen, that's the way of the world and you don't like what you're hearing the way the world is, silence the messengers of God. Just put them off. Cut them off. Tune them out. That's what this man does. Can I ask you a question? Quick, very quick. Two questions. Ready? When God reveals to you your sin, how do you respond? When God reveals your... Second question. How often does this happen? How often does God... Be honest. How often does the Lord enter your life either verbally or through the written word of God, and he inaudibly inside of you, the Holy Spirit convicting, he reveals your sin to you. How do you respond to that? This man's response is not repentance. It's to silence and to imprison the prophet of God. Is your response to turn away from the convicting voice of God. Or is your response to, Lord, you're right, I agree with you, I confess, and I repent? Is your response to get angry at God or to get angry at the messenger? That's a wrong response. That's the response of Herod the great. But it gets worse. Look at verse number 6, if you would. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Mark chapter 6, verse number 21, listen, tells us who the company is. I'm not going to turn there. You say, who are these other people? These other people are his nobles, his military commanders, and the leaders of Galilee. So you remember the map we looked at a while ago? Putting two to two together, we know that he's down south in, at Macarius, down at this palace that his father built. So he's getting his guys from Galilee. They're invited down. Let's go on a little vacation. Let's hit the road. You're invited over here, and they're down in his southern portion of his kingdom of Perea. Now, here's the sick, twisted part. Not only did this Herod steal away, wrongfully long for his sister-in-law. Pay attention. Not only did he steal her away for himself and married his niece, but he's so reprobate in his mind that he takes pleasure and enjoyment when his wife, a.k.a. niece... When her daughter dances for him and all of his guys, he takes pleasure as she dances seductively for them. Now think about it. you got to pay attention, and I've put it a little bit together so we understand exactly what's happening here. His wife, Herodias, is his niece, and so is her daughter. She's his niece, and her daughter is his niece. His wife is his niece through Aristobulus, her daughter is his niece through Philip. Not only is this young girl his niece and great-niece, obviously also she's his stepdaughter. I don't care which one of those titles you want to lose. use. It is just sinful and sick and wrong to take enjoyment out of her dancing for you and all of your buddies. But it gets worse. Notice verse number 7. She danced and pleased him so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. This man, very foolishly, again, let me say it clearly, depravity of heart leads to foolishness of speech. Mark records, more specifically, Mark has a longer account. Mark records that Herod tells her, as she's pleasing him and the guests, I will give you anything you ask, here's the one qualification, not seen here, up to half my kingdom." probably a euphemism, a little bit of an exaggeration to get the point across. Listen, he's wanting to look like a big shot. It's his birthday. He's no doubt flaunting his money, flaunting his power. He's called in these guys. Here's this young girl. She is a young girl and pleases all of them and acting like a big shot. I'll give you anything that you ask for up to half my kingdom. Well, she needs to exit. According to Mark, she goes out, asks her mother, what should I ask for? The mother apparently has already contrived all of this she knows what she wants and says you go back in there and ask for what the text says if i could go back in time i would like to see the look on this man's face verse number nine says and the king was sorry one of the other gospels says that he was distressed i wonder if she walks back in again he's acting like a big shot in my mind i'm picturing this so did you come up with something yes i did Is it within the parameters of half my kingdom? Something I can give. Oh, yes, it is. You have the power to give it. All right, what is it? What, what, What shall I give you? What will it be? I wonder the look on his face when she coolly and calmly says, I will have John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. I wonder if in his mind he started saying, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. No, what have you asked for? But he can't say that out loud. So let's go real quickly. What is the right thing for him to do? He has sworn with an oath. I swear. He's made a promise. What should he do? If he were there, hey, you're a Christian, come here. I made an oath over here. It's a really dumb one. It's really, really stupid. It's got me in trouble. And now I'm going to have to execute this fellow. What should I do? What would you tell him? Well, if you promised, I guess you got to do it. Would you write this down? Herod's oath should never have been made, but even after making it, listen to me, oaths that break God's laws must be broken. I'm not going to defend that right now, but as we get into the next chapter, chapter number 15, I think that will become clear to us. The Lord Jesus is going to have a problem with some Pharisees who make oaths and promises that end up causing them to break other portions of the Word of God. So his problem was he never should have made the oath in the first place. But once you've made it, if keeping the oath, the promise, the swear that you made, to be honest, I have to now break another portion of God's word. Well, then you need to not break the other portion of God's word. You need to break your oath. Quick lesson. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. This may be for like one person here. Don't make promises you cannot righteously keep. Don't make promises you should not keep. I see this all the time. I'm seeing this trend. I'll give you one example. There are people who should be in the house of God, but they make commitments with other people, a.k.a. employers, to keep them out of the house of God. Sign me up. I'll do it. No. You need to go back to them and say, Listen, I have blown it. I have told you sign me up, and I will do that. I need to amend that. I was wrong. I never should have committed to that. I need to get out of that promise because the Lord says I need to meet faithfully with His people. Now, you can blow that off and you'll pay the price. And then give us a phone call to come fix it when you do, right? We're not going to be able to fix it. Don't make promises you can't keep. So what does he do? He keeps his promise. Well, I guess he's an honest fella. No. If you're taking notes, it was his pride that did not want to look weak. This is a weak, weak man. But he doesn't want to look weak in front of his guests. So it's his pride, much more than a desire to be honest, that makes him follow through with such an oath, a foolish oath, a depraved oath and promise as this. Do you remember Proverbs 29, 25? Do you remember that little phrase? Catch it, ladies and gentlemen. This is important. This affects me this morning. I have to be careful. Some things I'm going to say today will not be popular, and I'm literally trying in the moment to be surrendered should I say certain things or not as we get to them Proverbs 29 25 says the fear of man brings a snare the fear of man traps us if I'm afraid of people then I'm not going to do what I should do in the moment the fear of man brings a snare MacArthur says if that's ever been vividly illustrated anywhere in the Bible it's illustrated in this text MacArthur writes the following listen He says, Herod feared almost everything and everyone but God. He not only feared the multitude, but he also feared John the Baptist, his wife, and his peers. This is a man who lives in fear, and his fear causes him to use his authority to do the wrong things. Unfortunately, you see down in verse 9. Look at 9 and 10. Look at it with your eyes. The king was sorry, but because of his oaths really his guests, he commanded it to be given, he sent and had John beheaded. Listen, that sounds so strange to us. In our day in America, you can't can't just send and have that done without a trial. Unfortunately, rulers of that day had such power, they could give such a command, and there would not be a trial, there would be no questions asked. These men went and carried out his wicked command, and it happened just like that. Number two this morning, not only do we see Herod, a foolish man of depravity, but we see Herodias, a woman of deep-seated hatred. And I mean deep-seated hatred. Do you see verse number five? Look at it right quick. Though he, Herod, wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. They held him to be a prophet. So what does that mean? Herod wanted to put him to death, but he feared the people. That's part of the issue Go find the balance of that. I want you to actually flip over here. We'll only do this a few times today. Look over at Mark chapter 6. Would you go to Mark 6? Flip over there right quick. Look at verse 19 and 20. So Mark chapter 6. Once you get there, you'll see, oh, he actually has about almost 40% more material on this. We're not going into all of it. But verse 19 does give us a little bit more of what's going on. Mark chapter 6. Look at verse 19. The first five words almost could be the title of the message. See verse 19? Here's the the core problem. And Herodias had a grudge. Herodias had a grudge. I remember hearing a preacher, the same preacher that was preaching the week I was convicted of of needing my salvation. heard that same preacher preach a message out of the Old Testament called Amnon had a friend. But Amnon, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab had this bright idea that Amnon needed to connive in such a way as to get alone with his own sister and ended up having sexual relations verse number 19 here here's the big problem Herodias had a grudge she wasn't gonna let it go verse 19 and 20 gives us more information Herodias had a grudge against him John and wanted to put him to death but she could not she's not in charge Uh, she's in charge of Herod but she's not in charge of Perea in Galilee Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John. This guy fears everybody. For Herod feared... He's afraid of her. He's afraid of John. He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of his peer. Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him... We'll catch back up. Verse 20. When Herod heard John... He was greatly, can, uh, somebody help uh, get that on silence? It should be a little button maybe on the side, usually, that'll silence it. All right, verse number 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him. Uh, can we get somebody to help right there? Please, thank you. Somebody knows how to do that. Thank you very much. Sorry for those of you online. All right, back to verse 20. Let's try it one more time. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, so when Herod hears John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Would you write down four things, three things actually, that we learn out of this text. Number one, this is strange, worded strangely. Herod did and yet did not want to put John to death. Herod did want to put John to death because he wants to appease Herodias. But Herod doesn't want to put John to death. As you already see, there's another reason coming. But he's afraid of the common people. Number two, what do we learn? Herod feared John. Why? It's in the text, guys. He knows John is right. John is a righteous man. John is a holy man. What John is saying is the truth. So he's afraid of him. And that's one of the reasons. I don't want to put him to death. He's actually right on this issue. But I want to put him to death to keep her happy happy, and I have to live with her. The text says that, John, that Herod is perplexed by John. He's confused by what he has to say. And so I'm wondering, what does this mean? When he hears John talk, the best I can guess is, how is this man so brave? How is he so bold? How is he so courageous? He has to know that I have the power to put him in prison. He has to know that I have the power to put him to death. Where does he get such courage? And this is amazing and perplexing to a weak man. And then notice, third, write this down. We know that Herod tried to protect John from Herodias. He tried to protect John from Herodias. And he did for a while by keeping him in prison, but he was unsuccessful. Why? So I'm almost done with Herodias because I want to just borrow a a quote from Barclay who writes the following. He put it in a way that I just thought, you know what, that kind of sums her up. Better than I would be able to do. Listen to it first, and then we'll go back and write it. You ready? Everybody ready? Barclay writes the following. He says, Herodias was stained by a triple guilt. Catch it. Listen. Herodias was stained by a triple guilt. Here it comes, three things. Number one, she was a woman of loose morals and of infidelity. Ladies, men, don't live life with loose morals. infidelity. Herodias was a woman of loose morals and infidelity. Number two, she was a vindictive woman. Hear it first. He's right on the money when he writes the following. He says, she was a vindictive woman who nursed her wrath to keep it warm. Have you ever met somebody? Is there anyone listening right now? You are so bitter and angry at someone, and it's been a long, long time, but you keep nursing your wrath because you want to keep it. It's about to die down, but no, one's stir it back up. He writes, she was a vindictive woman who nursed her wrath to keep it warm and who was out for revenge even when she was justly condemned. I will get you if it's the last thing I do. But, but he, he's right. I don't care. You don't say that about me. But he's telling the truth. Justly condemned, yet she's out for revenge. And then he gives a third thing that you'll not see on your handout. He offers the following. He writes, quote, Perhaps worst of all, she was a woman who did not hesitate to stoop to use even her own daughter to realize her own vindictive ends. Ladies and gentlemen, let this sink in. Put yourself back in that position. I hope this sounds extremely foreign to you. Like, I just can't fathom. This is a woman whose hatred was so deep that she sends her young daughter. The the idea, the word used here for Salome, that's who we think her name was. Though I don't know that she was mentioned in Scripture. But history tells us Herodias' daughter is a girl named Salome, very young. Probably 12 to 16 years old. You're like, that's absolutely, that makes it even worse, even right. Here's a woman whose hatred is so deep. She sends her young daughter daughter out to be ogled over by her stepfather, uncle, great-uncle, and all of his twisted buddies. And she's so filled with hatred when, when that daughter steps out and says, he said, I can have anything up to half the kingdom. What should I ask for? She sends her back in, having instructed her, you can have any gift you want. Go ask gruesomely for the head. Of John the Baptist. If I were there, I'd be like, really, lady? Hold on. Your daughter has a chance to have anything up at the kingdom, and you want the head of. You are so filled with hate and depravity. We could go on about Herodias, but here's what I want to do. Well, if this was Wednesday night, I'll tell you what we would do. I'd give you five minutes, and I'd say, read the text over and over, read these 12 verses, and write down lessons. Is there an Old Testament couple coming to mind that this is the New Testament version of? Jezebel and Ahab, right? Is that coming to your mind? You're like, man, they're like Ahab and Jezebel. Weak Ahab and wicked and corrupt and strong Jezebel, overrunning him. Yep, this is the New Testament version. What are we to learn from them? I wish we had five minutes and I'd just say, guys, write down. What are the lessons we learn? For time's sake, I had to cut out several. So let me give you three lessons. Let's apply this. Number one, by looking at this couple, this reprobate couple, we learn, number one, that the hearts of mankind are deceitful and desperately wicked. Did you catch it? So, Jeff, when you look at this text, what, what does this show you? When I'm looking at this, here's what I learned. Mankind's hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Now, some of you may say, whoa, 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 whoa time out. Listen. Don't throw us in with their twisted mess. These people are perverted, that's understood. Don't put us in with them, guys, ladies and gentlemen. The hearts of mankind, all of mankind are deceitful and desperately wicked. Can we agree on this? It is really easy to sit in judgment today. This is clear. There's no doubt about it. We're, we don't have to use, I mean this is this is clear discernment tells us how wicked and depraved this family. They have an unusual level of venting their depravity. Because if if you miss everything else, you better get what I'm about to say. If all of us or any one of us was left to ourselves apart from God... Our sin nature is such that anyone, you say, well, I know a lady in here, she's so sweet, she would never do anything that they've done. I promise you, left to ourselves, any of us are capable of doing the exact same things or worse in the right situation. This is a picture of how people live when they think there is no judgment from God. There's no accountability to God. You expect people to start living like animals. That's what you have. They are living like just with that one, and I'm going to be with that one for a little while, and I don't like him, lock him up. We have the power, put him in prison. We have the power, put him to death, offer things, renege on it. Just foolishness and depravity. This is how people live. There's some things going on in our country recently. It is sick. It is, ladies and guys, there are things going on in our cities and on our college campuses and on faraway farm places. You name it, there's some sick, sick things that are, there are things being produced and watched and enjoyed on the internet that we can't talk about in here. Can't talk about it. You say, Jeff, why is this happening? Here's why. Because the number of people in our country who deny that there's a God is on the rise. The number of people who say, okay, there is a God, but we're denying his authority. When that's on the rise, then what you're going to get is more and more venting of the wicked, sinful nature that we're all born with. And it's extremely, I get it. Some of you, like the last year, I can't believe how much our country has changed. Oh, no, no, it's just coming to the surface. It's been building. It is frustrating, but here's what I'm going to tell you. You shouldn't be shocked. We've been making decisions to go away from God. And this is what, let me go further. It will get worse unless God in his mercy lets a revival and uses the church to minister to this lost world and reveal our sin and give us grace of salvation. Plan on it. It will get worse. It's going to get worse. Second lesson, second lesson, write this down. So, Jeff, as you look at this, what do you see? Well, our hearts of mankind are their picture of, of our capability. Number two, conscience. Conscience is all over. You see, I don't see the word conscience anywhere in the text. Look at verse two. So, Herod heard about, Herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John. This is John. Now, pay attention here. Here's one of the lessons hear it first. Conscience is God's gift of an inner voice. It's your voice. It's you. It's not out loud. You all have one. You have one. I have one. Conscience is God's gift of an inner voice. Now, here's what the conscience does. Conscience tells us, do the right thing conscience tells us don't do the wrong thing pay attention conscience when we have done the wrong thing convicts us that we have done the wrong thing here it is again conscience says do the right thing don't do the wrong thing when we've done the wrong thing our conscience convicts us this is the area in a christian that the holy spirit works to bring about conviction the holy spirit works in our conscience but an unsaved person has a conscience A saved person has a conscience and the Holy Spirit using our conscience. Pay attention. Here's the problem with the conscience that we're all born with. Apart from God, so if God's over here and here we're born with this sin nature, but we have this conscience. Apart from God, our conscience tells us to do the right thing and says don't do the wrong thing. But here's the problem It doesn't always understand what the right thing is. It just says, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. Apart from God, our conscience is not always reliable. That's why our consciences need to be Bible educated. Our conscience can say, do the right thing, but a thief thinks the right thing to do is not tell on his friends when he gets caught. Oh, I can't do that. Didn't you have a partner? We see him on the video. We just can't make him out. Who is it? I can't do that. That would be the wrong thing to do. His conscience is saying, don't reveal the law-breaking partner. So what does this mean to us? Herod has a, you better get this. Herod has a bruised, smitten, guilty conscience for putting John the Baptist to death. Do you guys see that? Hey, there's this man, Jesus And he's giving his disciples, there's powerful things happening all around. It's it's John. What makes you say that? Everything's always about John. Are you okay, king? It's John. He's back from the dead. You sound like you got a guilty conscience. He can't get away from it. But here's the problem. If he really thought it was John come back from the dead, what should he do? He should have gone to him and said, listen, man, I can't sleep at night. Everything in life is about you. I am really sorry. What would have happened? Jesus would have said, number one, get up. Yeah, you shouldn't have killed my cousin. You shouldn't have killed my forerunner. But I'm not John. And he should have repented and got his heart right and recognized his sin. Does anybody, I won't even ask you. I don't expect you to know this. Luke 13, 31, you know what it tells us? Herod's reaction to Jesus even if he thinks he's John resurrected, is not to go get things right with John resurrected. His answer is to kill Jesus too. Killed him. You must be him back from the dead. I don't understand it, but in Luke 13, 31, some Pharisees, for some reason, come and warn Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. I've gotten real animated this morning, but what I'm about to say has a lot of weight to it. This man is in hell at this moment. He will spend eternity in a lake of fire in torments. The reason is that the way to heaven, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, was right there in his region, revealing his power. But this man refused to recognize the true identity of Jesus You say, Jeff, why didn't he understand the true identity? Listen, because he squelched, doused, turned from, tuned out his guilty conscience. For all that I've said about this family and this man and his wicked wife, I'm telling you, had he confessed his sin... Repented and turned to the Lord Jesus in faith God would have forgiven him even of all of that sin But he doesn't recognize Jesus Because he will not give in to his guilty conscience He keeps to, And his only answer is to double down on his guilt I'm out to kill you too then If you're back from the dead My goal is to kill you What a wicked, wicked man Grace, can I implore you and me You have a conscience You have one Keep it clean. Keep it sensitive. Don't let it get callous. I'm going to say something, young people, youth. I don't know if you're in upper middle, middle school, upper elementary, high school, college. I'm going to say something. You guys are you are going to think I'm being silly. Young people, don't break even the small, smallest rules in your house don't break even the small rules at school that you think are silly. If your school says don't chew gum and don't eat food and don't take sodas or whatever into class, please don't think it's cute to do what you can get away. You're like, seriously, are you preaching about chewing gum in class? Everybody does it. Listen. If you do that, you are only callousing. He's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever done. Live with a clean conscience. Because when you sneak and hide it from the teacher, that's your conscience saying, oh, you're doing the wrong thing. You're doing the wrong thing. It seems small now, it could cost you later. Don't go against even the smallest of rules that our authorities give us. So, Jeff, I thought you said there were three things. What do you see in the text? Lots of things. I see the depravity of our hearts, and I see how conscience can be overrun. Number three, would you write this down? This reprobate couple reveals to us that it is the way of the world to use force to accomplish its agenda. Did y'all catch that in the text? They've got the power, throw him in prison. We've got the power, just have him killed. It is the way of the world to use force to accomplish its agenda. Would you leave this section? I told you we'd only do two or three times this morning. Would you leave this? Go over to James. You're going to to want to see this with your eyes. Go over to James because I'm actually going to refer to the passage just before. You'll not see the first part on the screen. You'll see two verses, but you'll not see what's at the end of chapter 3. I'm telling you the truth today. It is the way of the world to use force to accomplish its agenda. That's the plan. Get the upper hand. Do whatever it takes to get the upper hand. Once you do, crush your opponents. If your Bibles are open, you're in James chapter 4, would you go back very quickly to James chapter 3? Look at verse 14. Look at chapter 3. I'm going to build up. Let's read quickly, but just for context. But if you have bitter jealousy, that's not good selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This, did you catch it? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Translation, this is not the way of God. The way of God is not bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Verse 15 again. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy And selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, the way of God, translation, the way of God, the wisdom from above, is first pure. It's not mixed. It's pure. It's about God's will. The wisdom from above is first pure. Notice these words, ladies and gentlemen. The way of God is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. What do you think about that? I don't see it that way. Oh, yeah? Well, this. Hold on. What would you say? This and this and this. I hadn't thought of that. Hold on. You're changing my mind. Have you thought about this and this and this? The way of God is first pure, then it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. You seeing a lot of impartiality in our country? The way of God is impartial and sincere, genuine. Not afraid of the light. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now chapter 4 verse 1 is our text. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions, your evil twisted pleasures are at war within you, at war within your members. Now watch verse 2. You desire, you desire, you do not have. That's no problem. We have a solution for that. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Again, you covet and cannot obtain. Well, we've got to do what we've got to do to get what we want. No, you do not have God's people because you do not ask. You need to ask. Let God give it to you. No, we're just going to go do it ourselves. Yeah, that's the way of the world, is to use force. We could apply that in a hundred ways. I want to be balanced here. I didn't go seeking these thoughts, but they come to me this week. As we're looking at our text, and I'm seeing this couple that's in power, using their power to crush people who are underneath them. It's the way of the world to use force. We've been seeing it for months in our country. Don't get offended by one thing. I I hope my goal here is let's be balanced. Let's open our minds. Let's be open to reason. Let's be merciful. About eight months ago, there started something in our country. What did we find? We saw a group of people. Listen who in their heart feel like we're not being heard. We've been devalued. We're not being heard for decades, (laughs) centuries. Nobody's listening. Let me be real clear here. I'm not talking about protesters. There are some... That started as protesters, but because this is in their heart, we're not being heard. No one's listening to us. We're being devalued. Decades, centuries. So what they do? They took to the streets in riotous destruction. Injuring people. Sometimes killing people. Destroying public and private property. Destroying people's lives that had nothing to do with their issue. Lawbreaking riotous mobs. That's the way of the world. Fast forward from last May and all that happened last summer to, oh, 10 or 11 days ago. Others, here's the thing, who formerly denounced those people as wrong, guarantee you, track them down, they would be on that, I can't believe they're doing this. Somebody needs to do something, and they're against this group. Well, all of a sudden, like 10, 11 days ago, these people who denounced their riotousness suddenly turn around and do the exact same thing. Why? Because we have this issue, and we have this evidence, and it needs to be heard, and nobody's listening to us. And this is important. We're being done wrong. Catch what I'm about to say. We've not been listened to for the last six or seven weeks and so we need to take action. Right, but won't you just... Do, yeah, but they need to get over it. This is important. Right, they feel like they've not been heard for decades. Can we all agree on this? It's frustrating when you feel wronged and nobody's listening. It's frustrating. Add to that, we've got politicians who've defended one group's destruction and mobbery and riotous living for months. Some literally defending it, others defending it by their silence, saying nothing. And all of a sudden, they're denouncing this activity as if we don't see right through it. You're denouncing it now because it's your opponents who are doing it. You have a group of people over here who think and sympathetically agree and actually start thinking, how can we make this happen? We need to defund the police. Well, now all of a sudden, they're wanting more police today. We need a bigger, stronger press. I thought you were against these people. Well, no, not now. Our opponents are the ones who are out doing it now. It's wrong. And here's what's maybe most disturbing: some Christians picking and choosing, disapproving of some lawbreakers and approving of others. Why? Careful, Grace. If you listen. Sometimes we can confuse our patriotism and think that it's us following God's plan. Be care. I know it's quiet in here, but you need to think with me. We should not equate our patriotism. I'm as patriotic as anybody in here. I love democracy. I, lo- I love that I've been ch- for 51 years in a country that has democracy. I love it. Of economic systems, I like capitalism the best of the not great methods. When it comes to economic systems, mankind has, some of us are greedy and some of us are lazy and so for those reasons, there's no perfect system. Capitalism, I guess, is maybe the best one that's out there but can I tell you, listen carefully, democracy and capitalism are not in the New Testament. They're not in there. And somebody listening to me right now is saying, I like that one point he made a while ago. I didn't like the second one, but I like the third one. Those politicians are hypocrites. And now they're hearing this and like, oh, no, no, no. And in your mind, you're thinking of Bible passages. There's no foundation for what these people did 10 10 days ago. I'm not talking about the protesters. I'm not talking about the hundreds of thousands. I'm talking about the hundreds who broke broke away and broke the law. And some Christians are defending them like they're patriots. No, they're not. They're lawbreakers. Stay consistent. we got to think biblically. Again, don't go with everything just because that makes sense to you or it lines up with what I feel. What does the Bible say? We can't be inconsistent. Some are thinking right now, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of some Bible passages that goes with it. Let me make something real, real clear here, and I'm going to move on because I get it. It's uncomfortable. We're not Old Testament Israel. Praise the Lord, neither are we Rome in the New Testament. We're not Romans of the New Testament. And we're sure we're not Old Testament Israel. You say, Jeff, why is it good that we're not Rome? We get a voice. We get to protest. We get to rally. We get to do all those things. But we don't get to break the law. And we don't get to defend those who do break the law. Christians, learn to think biblically. If you want to go back and listen to this tape and write these down, go to James chapter 3, James chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 13, Acts chapter 23, 1 through 5. It's all in the New Testament. What's our attitude? You say, if we're not to use physical force, then what is the church to do? God calls Christians to obey the government laws and to live peaceably and to use the force of the gospel. That's our force. It's a spiritual force. It's not a physical force. Well, what if they don't listen and run over us? Well, then God has a plan for that. All the while, we're using that force in the power of the Holy Spirit, praying for God to let us have this, because we're not asking it selfishly to consume it upon our lust, but we believe this is the plan of God. But the New Testament's clear, Christians. We obey the laws of the land unless it specifically makes us disobey God, and that is the exception. The Jews of their day, they were looking for somebody to come slap the Romans around. Peter very quickly wielded the sword. And Jesus says, put that away. You're not on God's schedule and plan. Now that I've made everybody mad, number three. Back to Matthew. What do we notice last? Is John a man of faith and conviction? John's a man of faith and conviction. Put drink of water. If you were with us a few months ago, John in Matthew chapter eleven, here's what we learn. Can we recap quickly, very fast? Three things about John the Baptist. He's a prophet. Jesus said, "Hey, when you went out to see John, what'd you go do? See like a weak little wimpy uh, preacher, like a little stalk blowing in the wind? Yeah, when well, you, you went to see the wrong thing." He says, "What'd you go out to see? Somebody dressed in fine clothes? Hope not. That's not what you saw. He wore camel's hair. What'd you go out to see? A prophet? Yes." This is a man who proclaimed the revelation of God, a prophet, bold prophet. He said, I don't think I would like what that Bartlett fellow this morning. Well, if you didn't like that, and if you don't like what I'm going to say here in a minute, you sure couldn't handle John the Baptist. You would be like, I'm never going back to another one of his rallies ever again. This guy calls it like it is. He's a prophet. Listen, what else we learned? Very fast. He's more than a prophet. How? How's he more than a prophet? Not only does he prophesy, but he fulfills prophecy. The other prophets didn't do that. Isaiah, Malachi prophesied about him. He's the forerunner of the Lord. He's more than a prophet. Third thing we learn, of all the people in the Old Testament born of women, none of them were greater than John. It doesn't say necessarily he's the greatest, but none of them were greater than John. He doesn't take second place to anybody according to Jesus. How's that? Because though they make all these prophecies, John's is the most specific John doesn't say, here's what to look for. Look for this and that and that and put it all together. And you should be able to figure it. John says, oh, you want to know who the Christ is? It's him right there. That's him. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Oh, and on top of that, he's the son of God and he's the lamb of God. What does that mean? I don't know. He's the lamb of God too. This guy's more than a prophet. Nobody's greater than him. And then we come to verses three and four. And boy, he gets in hot water. Why? John's a straight shooter. Can I just give you, I think, maybe the best proof that he's a straight shooter. (laughs) This is the greatest proof. Do you remember when he's been in prison for probably about a year, he starts having some doubts. What does he do? He's having doubts about Jesus. You know what John does? He calls Jesus out. This guy is so bold, such a straight shooter. Like, Jesus, I've got some problems. I'm really confused in here. I live strict and straight, and I'm in prison. Seems like you and your boys are living kind of looser than I do. I've been telling everybody when the Messiah comes, he's going to pour out judgment and the Holy Spirit on the good people. Judgment on the wicked, Holy Spirit on the good. You've done either one of those. Are you sure you're the Messiah? If you're him, let me know. Otherwise, I need to go back and amend what I've been telling her. This guy's a straight shooter. He even, he's, i got a question about you. I'm going to ask it. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's very important. Government officials. talking about Herod. Government officials are ordained servants of God every bit as much as I'm an ordained servant of God. Government officials are ordained servants of God. But just like other Old Testament prophets, John found himself in a position where he needed to warn a wicked ruler about his sin. And he did it. John calls it like it is. Herod, she's someone else's wife. She's your sister-in-law. She's your niece. You're not supposed to be with her. Herod, how dare you try to rule over God's people living in sin? You can't live like that and be over God's people. You're in sin. John just called it like it is. While we're here, and since I've already made everybody mad, let's go ahead and state the obvious. God's laws on sexual sin are not popular, but they're clear. They're clear. Listen, you have sexual relations with somebody else's spouse, that's called adultery. It's called adultery. Don't sugarcoat it. You have sexual relations with someone else who's anybody else who's not your spouse, that's called fornication. It's sin. Sin is rampant in the United States. Sin is rampant in the churches. And you know what happens when someone starts pointing it out? Here's what happens. People just stop going to church. That's the solution. That's what they did. Put him in prison, shut him up. Don't want to hear that. Fine. I'm going to tell you something. The solution is not to run from me and run from us. The solution is to run from your sin and run from the temptation. Cut it off, get away from it, and live for the Lord. Stop sinning. Don't let your heart go where it shouldn't go. Don't give in and indulge your temptations. And then blame God or his messengers for being the bad guys when all they're doing is telling the truth. It's your sin. John's a straight shooter. You see verse 4, quick drink of water, I'm almost done. Unless the Lord decides I really am done with my voice, we'll see. Verse 4, because John had been saying. John's unafraid to preach against sin, no matter whose it was. Why? Why? This would take a long study to defend, but I want to challenge you. Do you see this in the Scripture? John was unafraid to preach against anybody's sin, even rulers, because he knows the sin of rulers especially pollutes the nation. And the sins of rulers especially incurs the wrath and judgment of God. Our leaders... Or an extension of us. And if they're living in sin, then we can expect the judgment of God to come upon our land. No one is above the law in the eyes of John the Baptist. John, in his mind, his role was to be the conscience of the king because the king is not heeding his conscience. And so John becomes the conscience. Church, listen to me, church, all true Christians... We are to be, one of our roles is to be the conscience of the nation. We are to call out. Now, here's the qualifications. We're to call out sin when we see it, giving the truth in love, but always giving it with the gospel. Not condemningly, not not better than, and not hopelessly, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. And that's it. That's not the message The message is that we're born in sin. We commit acts of sin. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. But God sent his son. If we put our faith and trust in him, we don't have to go to hell. Don't you want to receive the gospel? It's a hope-filled message. It's not a we're up here and you're down here. But we've got to be consistent. It starts with conviction for sin. Otherwise, why would anybody want to put their faith and trust in Christ if they don't feel conviction for sin? We're called to combat sin, listen, even when it's costly. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you. It's going to get more costly. It's coming. I said that about a year and a half ago. Look at us now. It's coming. Verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. John's an outdoorsman. John was outdoorsman. He lived out in the wild. He lived in the desert. He didn't dress up. He ate wild honey and locusts. That's his diet. He loved being outside. He's an outdoorsman at heart. They tell us, because of archaeological findings of this place, there's a palace up on top. Off to the west, you can see the Dead uh, Dead Sea about seven miles away. But John doesn't see the Dead Sea. They tell us that they had dug deep down in the ground and that John, they have the, the evidence to show that prisoners in Machiris, in this palace in the dungeon, were deep underground, chained And that describes and fits what we see here. Here's a man for about a year, the last year of his life, is chained with no view of the outside, horrible conditions, no fresh air, being a torture to him. That would have been especially torturous to a man like this. And that's his final days until he dies around 32 years old. And then here come the executioners. We're not told what happened. I don't know if they let him know as they're unshackling what's happening. Where are we going? I don't know if they told him or maybe they said, your head's getting cut off. If they did, how did he respond? Did he hold out hope up to the end that God was going to deliver him? Did he just resign like I figured this was coming? Now's the night. Did he welcome it? Finally. Yes. Bring it on. My mission is done. I've been the forerunner. Get me out. I don't know where he was at. Was he afraid? I doubt it. I don't think he was afraid. All I know is it's tough to live for the Lord. And it's very trying to our faith when we're put in the crucible and we're stretched and we're suffering day after day. It wouldn't be wrong. I wouldn't put it past him. It's not impossible that his faith was weak in that moment. But I just wonder, John... He probably still had some fire in him when he went to the chopping post. I close this morning in 1 Peter 3. Would you just, again, as you're flipping, 1 Peter 3. We're going to read it and we'll be done. I don't know his reaction, but here's what I do know. John sure got the better of Herod that day. And as you're turning, some of you may say, oh, Jeff, hang on, buddy. uh you just misspoke. You said John got the better of Herod that day. Oh, no, I didn't misspeak. John sure got the better of Herod that day. And you may say, how in the world? What makes you say such a thing as that? Scripture. Scripture says John got the better of Herod. Where's that at in the Bible? Look at verse number 13. Actually, verse 14, for time's sake. Jump right to verse 14. 1 Peter three 14. Let's hit it and we'll be done. The Bible says, but even if you should. So right before it says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Hey, if you're zealous for doing what's right, who's to harm you? Most people shouldn't harm us. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer, do you catch that? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There's a blessing when we suffer for righteousness. It's coming, ladies and gentlemen, it's coming. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it when they ask you. Don't just blister them. Do it with gentleness and respect. Watch verse 16, 17. Here we go. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered. Do you know what they're saying about you out there? Okay. Okay. When you're slandered, be living with a good conscience so much so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, why are you against that lady? Why are you against that? Because she said this. Well, that's true. You are great. Well, it's truth. Why are you mad at her for telling the truth? Why are you mad at that guy for doing the truth? You say, Jeff, how can you say that John got the better of Herod? Verse 17 says, for it is better. To suffer for doing good. That's John. If, well, that's not God's will. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. I can't imagine that would ever be God's will. Guys, listen. It's better to suffer for doing good, John the Baptist, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's Herod. You won't see it on the screen, but verse 18, for those of us who say that can't be God's will, God's will would never be that his people suffer for doing good. Verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Oh, yes, sometimes it is God's will. And you say, hold on. Why would God... Your last note is this one. John's death is an example of the confounding ways of God. I don't know why God let this happen to John. But his death and his example of the confounding ways of God, we talked about in Romans 11.33 last week. J.C. Ryle writes it this way. And after this, we'll close our eyes. Ryle writes it this way. So hear it. He says, if ever there was a case of godliness unrewarded in this life, it was that of John the Baptist. But a little later, he writes this. you got to get it. It's coming, ladies and gentlemen. It's coming. If ever there was a case of godliness unrewarded in this life, it was that of John the Baptist. Skip ahead in the quote. But there is an eternal holiday yet to begin. For this, let us wait quietly. It will make amends for all. And then he quotes 2 Corinthians 4:17. He says, "Our for our light affliction, it doesn't feel light. In eternity it'll feel light. For our light affliction which is but for a moment. It was a year in light of eternity. Our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory." Hardship that is endured by faith literally results in more glory in eternity. John has more glory bestowed upon him and more glory to bestow back on Christ because he went through such hardship and endured it by faith in Christ. Not by force, but by faith in Christ. Every Christian who suffered hardship, when they get to heaven, will all be glad that they were able and counted worthy to suffer hardship for Christ If they stay true to him by faith. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Just for a moment this morning. I've got to ask these questions and then I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Did God's, so let's don't check out. Let's apply. Your mind may go somewhere that I'm not at. That's fine. What is the Lord saying to you based on our text this morning? I'm just wondering. Let's just start right here. Did God's Spirit at any point in our text this morning point out some sin in your life? Did God's Spirit point out... Christians, I'm talking to us. Did God's Spirit point out some sin that is yet to be confessed? Christians, I'm asking this. Do we have set aside times where we invite God to evaluate us and point out our sin? This must be done daily. We must keep short accounts with God. Do you have a quiet time where you say, Lord... How are things in my mind? Lord, evaluate my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my hands, my feet. You say, Jeff, that's what we do sometimes on Wednesday. We need to do it every day, through the day. Did God point out anything? If he did, here's the question. How do you respond when God exposes your sin? Do you get angry or do you agree with God? How do you respond? Got to ask it. Is all of our consciences clean this morning? We mentioned three primary sins. Is our conscience clean this morning of sexual sin of any kind? You say, Well, mine's private. It's not actually with another person. Just something I do privately. It's sexual sin. Are any oaths, have any oaths and promises that are unrighteous, have they been made? That we would have to break God's laws to keep these oaths, and we need to go beforehand and say, "Listen, I got to get out of that. What I said, I got. I'm sorry. If I keep that, it's going to make me break God's will for my life, and so I need to get out of that. And I'm sorry, and I apologize. I was wrong. And is there any hatred in our midst? Anyone nursing their wrath to keep it warm? Don't live with a clean conscience just before I pray Christians will you do two things even leading into our prayer Christians would you just take a moment and and just say God thank you for saving me from the penalty of sin but while you're at it not arrogantly but humbly say God thank you For saving me from the depravity of sin. I am no better of myself than these people we read about. But Lord, thank you that you've preserved me. Any good thing I've ever done, you've done it. Anything I've ever been kept from, it was you that did it. You used people and parameters in my life. You've kept me from being like this couple. I'm not better than him. Lord, thank you for keeping me and saving me from the depravity and the penalty and the power of sin. And while we're at it, let's all close in prayer. And let's ask the Lord to help us to be found faithful. What a man. Jesus wasn't John. He's God in the flesh. But John was a great example to us. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you. Lord, I just want to say thank you for giving your son. left you. There was a separation of you from your son to meet our needs. Lord, you did what I would never do for anyone. You let your son die in our place. I thank you for that. Thank you that you gave your Holy Spirit. You protect us from living like this. We rely upon your grace and your power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the word of God that educates our conscience. Lord, so then let us who know your word live in obedience to it. Lord, we're not earning our salvation, but Lord, let us please you and live the good life by living with a clean conscience. Father, if anyone here is struggling with some sexual sin, some sin of oaths and swearing and that should never have happened, Lord, if there's any hatred in our heart, let us turn from it as you identify it. And let us get victory over that through Christ. And then, Lord, let this group in the coming days, whatever you may allow to come, even when it's confounding to us, Lord, and confusing, we don't understand it, while you allow it in your sovereignty, Lord, let us be found faithful all the way to the end, knowing that it is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to be guilty of committing sin and evil. So, Lord, I commit this congregation to your care. Lord, would you put your favor, your blessing upon them, your strength. God, let us go be witnesses, the conscience of the nation. Lord, let us come Wednesday to prepare and to learn how to share our faith in the treasure that we have. In your son's name, amen. Thank you guys for coming. Have a great week. Lord willing, see you Wednesday.